Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in for the first podcast of 2023. And what a year ahead. The last full year before the general election, which won't happen this year, even though I know some of you have a theory that it might. Anyway, as ever in our time together, we've got a lot to cram in together. I'll give a few notices, it being the first of 2023, a few notices, assembly notices, um, as we gather for the first time in the year. Then, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to uh, reflect on Sunak's year coming up. And in the next podcast, I'll look at Keir Starmer's year. Absolute, I mean, it's obviously a vital year for Sunak. I mean, you know, it goes without saying. But this is a pivotal year for Starmer, as I say, the last full year before an election. And contrary to mythology that election campaigns can be make or break, it is the last full year which really determines the fate of parties and leaders. So yeah, and I hope to find the space in that one or the following one to reflect on Nicola Sturgeon's challenges uh, and some of the other party leaders too. Uh, so yeah, epic year ahead, politically speaking, as we all know. Very different from last year. Last year was highly charged political theatre and drama with the toppling of prime ministers left, right and centre. Uh, it was madness that will fascinate historians in 200 years to come. This is different, subtler, but in some ways more fascinating and gripping. Uh, then we uh, get some of your brilliant questions. Now, for those of you who've subscribed for the first time uh, as a New Year's resolution, uh, it's one you won't regret. And what you do is you can join in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative by emailing points or questions or what you're up to. Uh, and the address is steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick one four at icloud.com. Uh, and those regulars who listen, please subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe. And if you've got a few seconds to leave a review, that would be fantastic too, because that uh, widens our community as if by magic. A lot to get through and quite a few notices. So to begin with those, uh, yeah, those of you who kindly uh subscribe to Patreon. A new series begins of your bonus podcasts. This one is on the theme of the troublemakers. Um, those who in politics have caused considerable trouble and almost took pride in doing so. And it's based, the idea is based on some of you will know uh, the historian AJP Taylor, a legendary historian who did live improvised talks on peak time television in the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, amongst many other things. And he wrote many books. He was an academic. I kind of, He's one of my heroes, along with people like um, Bruce Forsyth and Brian Clough and people like that. Uh, I mean, he was a historian of, of depth. But I've, uh, in a pathetic way, partly modelled some of the things I do on what he did. I like giving improvised talks and so on. 
uh, including on TV, but not peak time TV, because that era where you have grown up television came to a sad close at peak time. But we have other options now, thankfully. Anyway, his favourite book, he was prolific. And he wrote, uh, as some of you will know, you know, The Origins of the Second World War, Course of German History, The Habsburg Empire, well, uh, endless books. But his favourite book was an anthology of his lectures on the theme of the troublemakers. He was a troublemaker himself. And the ones he chose were those who dissented in relation to foreign policy. Um, you know, he, he delved deeper than any of us lot, although in quite shallow ways at times, it has to be said. But he, he chose dissenters over uh, foreign policy. Um, and uh, some of the ones that will be included in your bonus podcasts uh, were dissenters in terms of foreign policy uh, and in many ways insightful ones. But I'm also looking at those who were dissenters in terms of um, domestic policy. And so uh, at some point in the coming days, your first bonus podcast in the series will arrive. And it's going to be Tony Benn in terms of a troublemaker, which he was, amongst other things. So uh, thank you for subscribing and another New Year's resolution. Do subscribe and you get things like rock and roll politics mugs. So you can have a lovely, comforting cup of coffee with a rock and roll politics mug. Uh, yeah, and as for the live shows, a lot of people told me actually over the Christmas New Year period that one of their resolutions is to go to more live shows. Uh, so I immediately said, well, you must come to mine. Anyway, here are some of them coming up, I'm taking a break in January and February. But uh, March the 24th, King's Place. March the 29th, the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham. Uh, April the 1st, the Witham Art Centre in Barnard Castle. April the 24th, the Old Market Theatre in Brighton. There are going to be many more. And, and hopefully in the autumn, because I know I get a lot of emails saying, can you come to X, Y and Z? Hopefully more across the UK uh, in the autumn. And of course, there's the Edinburgh Festival. So a lot of live stuff going on. And I will put the links to where you can get the tickets. They're all on sale at these various venues um, uh, in the blurb for this uh, podcast. Enough. I told you, I did warn you quite a few notices. And by the way, more announcements about the uh, podcast next week, uh, hopefully. Uh, but now, Rishi Sunak's year ahead, 2023. Now, before I begin, I need to say, in case you missed it, I explained uh, in a podcast a few weeks ago, in 2022, that distant era, the way in which Sunak could win the next election. It's an extremely narrow route, uh, but a route nonetheless. Um, and you can listen to that if you didn't hear it at the time. I'm not going to go through that again. Um, but for now, I reflect on this rather bizarre figure in number 10. Uh, I can see, I was wondering who he reminded me of, and the closest, of course, and it's a rather neat arc, uh, is Cameron. Cameron, who began this long period of conservative rule, and Sunak, who might end it. Both wealthy, Sunak far wealthier, uh, both from uh, privileged private schools, Cameron Eaton, Sunak Winchester, fiscal conservatives, uh, arguably to the right of Thatcher and Thatcherism, 
but with a uh, an attempt at a compassionate tone, which uh, certainly with Cameron had a plausibility that fooled, at first anyway, uh, many people on The Guardian, The Independent, uh, the BBC, who bought into that compassionate tone and saw him as an historic moderniser of the Tory party. It shows how low the bar is uh, in terms of, if you're a Conservative leader, with a bit of plausibility, you can fool a hell of a lot of people. But Sunak, too, I've always said is a good interviewee and has a uh, tonal range, part of which can convey an apparent sort of empathic uh, compassion like Cameron could. But Cameron was able to win just. Uh, he didn't win really in 2010. Of course, it was a hung parliament, a tiny majority in 2015, partly because he could ride a tide of uh, opposition to a long-serving Labour government. He was leader of the opposition, of course, uh, whereas Sunak has become prime minister at the end of a long period of conservative rule. So when Cameron sort of said, vote blue, go green, there was such antipathy, especially in the media, to Gordon Brown, who made the terrible sin of being about a millimetre to the left of uh, Tony Blair in the commentary. I couldn't really cope with this. That Cameron had quite a lot of space to develop his plausibility, his act as a leader. Uh, Sunak is doing it in a wholly different context. Um, And I I just find him rather weird at this phase. To my surprise, I thought he would have, from the beginning, a kind of refreshing plausibility combined with integrity, which is a novelty for uh, recent Conservative leaders. But he's just rather odd. I don't know if any of you saw his message on New Year's day, but it was utterly complacent to the point of weirdness. Uh, He gave a sort of video thing and put it out on Twitter and other uh, social media outlets. Now, in a way, there was a cinematic kind of juxtaposition here. Many people struggling with the NHS, stuck in ambulances, not able to get into a hospital, stuck in on kind of trolleys waiting to be seen, uh, a system on the edge of total breakdown. Meanwhile, those attempting to get a train uh, struggled to do so. And if they did, uh, the journeys were a form of hell that would embarrass a third world country. I was uh, waiting on a platform, Haringey Station, and the train just going a few stops was late because it said it had to wait for a train coming from Hull going into King's Cross. And it had kind of broken down, so it wasn't working effectively. It had to go very slowly. And this train passed the station I was waiting on. There was more space at, um, you know, when you had to stand at football matches and they were packed out, you know, you, you and the passengers looked ill with exhaustion standing up on every carriage and they were the lucky ones they got a train so the sense that uh, things aren't working intensified over this period and up pot soon act say i above all i just want people to feel proud to be british um it was a sort of oddly misjudged act of uh, jingoism um which surprised me 
I thought he would have more political, well, subtlety, really, than that. Um, uh, if he's lucky, not that many watched it. Um, but if they did, I think, you know, they would have been kind of alarmed is almost the wrong word, sort of just, what the heck is this about? What planet is this figure on? And of course, what uh, Sunak should have done and should be doing is um, recognising that this country is in a kind of state of emergency. Uh, on the NHS, there should be co COBRA meetings uh, on a daily basis to address the scale of the crisis and work out what the heck to do about it. And on the uh, transport situation, the other immediate one, of course, there are others, postal and all the rest of it, um, there needs to be a deep and urgent rethink of the whole damn structure, as we've discussed on this podcast uh, many times. It is absurd that negotiations take place with, incidentally, diverse range of unions with a diverse range of train operating companies and then with network rail but ultimately it's the government that calls the tunes i mean the whole thing is bonkers of course there should be seven day working but then you hear mick lynch say oh yeah you know you know of course there's seven day working when i was on the railways myself i worked so you know uh, so what the heck is going on I've almost come to the view that these negotiations should be televised um, as a way of holding all sides to account. But this too should be treated as an act of emergency instead of uh, Sunak kind of playing the tough guy as if he's Margaret Thatcher in the mid-1980s. Um, uh, but with him, actually, unlike with Liz Truss, who was partly you know, politics as a performance in which she saw herself as someone Thatcher-like in, in, in performance as well as ideology. I don't think that is the case with uh, Sunak. Um, I think it is something more interesting in a way, which is that Sunak is a rigid fiscal conservative. He's, he's a self-declared fiscal conservative. He has a moderate tone like David Cameron, but absolutely rooted on the Thatcherite right of his party, always has been. And when he was chancellor, he became frustrated that he couldn't give full vent to his fiscal conservatism because uh, his prime minister, Boris Johnson, uh, every now and again wanted to spend large sums of money. And the reason their relationship fell out was over this. Sunak said when he resigned, they couldn't agree on economic policy. And this was the essence of it, that uh, Johnson every now and again, I mean, he was all over the place, but every now and again was, as he described himself, a bit of a Rooseveltian. Call me Rooseveltian. Uh, he believed in the virtues of public spending. Uh, Sunak doesn't, or only when it's in the context of balancing the books. Here again, we return to the Cameron Osborne arc. And uh, he was frustrated as Chancellor. So now, as Prime Minister, uh, where he can decide and call the shots, he is going to give full vent to the fiscal conservatism that was frustrated in the Treasury. Um, now, the obstacles are different. People going on strike, nurses going on strike, 
Now, in a way, that is a more formidable obstacle than an erratic Boris Johnson who also wanted tax cuts and uh, to appear fiscally responsible and all this kind of stuff. But Sunak hasn't recognised that. Uh, He has decided to play it tough, for now anyway. By the time you hear this, there might have been some concession somewhere. But at the moment, he remains this curiously sort of ghostly figure. Whereas, and I think this is a difference with Cameron, who did see politics as a performance. Um, it, It was certainly in the way he was. I think Cameron would be out and about uh, developing a narrative about the state of Britain. And Sunak is sort of a distant figure. Uh, He hasn't really explained what he is about, his vision in any form. Beyond, as I say, as Chancellor, he used to say, I am a fiscal conservative. And now I think he's uh, able to pull the strings without having to convince a erratic prime minister there he is being this inflexible fiscal conservative prime minister as britain falls apart and now we hear briefings briefings that they're not going to implement the uh, child care proposals that uh, trust uh, but to some extent johnson had been advocating which of course is central to uh, productivity in britain if people uh, cannot afford to work because of the cost of childcare, they won't do so. But he is uh, apparently scrapping childcare plans as he pursues this sort of Goldman Sachs approach to the entire country, in which he yeah he'll take great pride. So oh, I've reassured the markets. Uh, I'm balancing the books. I'm scrapping childcare. I've already park social care, uh, which I was never very interested in when Johnson uh, claimed to have had a social care plan and I had to provide him with a plan because he didn't have one. Um, That's been parked. Transport. We know the strike has cost, especially the hospitality sector, huge sums of money. But he looks at it as being tough, you know, and I'm not going to spend money on this and uh, on wages. Um, And so... We are all stuck as he pursues this course and takes comfort that the markets have settled. And then there is, of course, Brexit, the great unresolved issue. It isn't done. And I read with horror uh, that in May, more barriers are going to be put in place, uh, more checks when people from this country attempt to get to Europe from Dover or wherever. Remember the queues from Dover last summer? I mean, when I hear this term Brexit freedom, I kind of shudder with anger because uh, we're all bloody trapped. The opposite of free. And it's affecting economic uh, performance in Britain in a way that I think is worse than I envisaged uh, before the outcome of the 2016 uh, referendum. Uh, Now, he can't deal with this. He's got to carry on. Maybe he is a genuine Brexiteer, but he has never made a big speech on it. He needs to explain why he thinks this is such a good idea beyond referring to these ridiculous free ports which could be established anyway pre-Brexit and all they do is move economic activity from one place to another within the UK. That is the kind of context at the moment with Sunak and the context provides surely answers as to his year ahead. He needs to develop 
a story about Sunak's Britain. And at the moment, there isn't one of any sort beyond the chaos that people are experiencing. In contrast to his jingoistic pride in being British, he needs to have a much more confident public profile. He is a confident person, clearly, but not one with a public profile as a prime minister. He needs to be the guide through the storms. Um, And uh, in order to get through the storms, he needs to have uh, a a more flexible approach to policy making. Um, Now, whether either of those two things happen, who knows? Who knows? But at the moment, it was very interesting. You see, the Cameron Osborne austerity policies were outdated. And it was fascinating the degree to which Conservative MPs turned against it. So, for example, after the 2017 election, when the Tories lost their overall majority, Tory MPs returned from there, those who held on, returned to Westminster to plead with uh, Theresa May and Philip Hammond to to end this austerity, that it was being counterproductive, not only in terms of uh, electoral support, but in terms of what was happening to their constituencies. And um, May did declare an end to it. Uh, actually, so did George Osborne after the Brexit referendum. He kept on reviving his target of wiping out the deficit in a single parliament. And when one parliament moved to its end without it happening, he just announced that in the next election, well, that will be our target the next time. And Labour fell into all the traps that arose from that. So, yeah, Brexit freedoms we keep on hearing about when I think uh, if you ask companies trying to navigate the hell of Lord Frosty Frosty's deal, freedom is the last word that comes to mind. Freedom, incidentally, is a word, the word, that Keir Starmer should seize uh, for Labour. But Starmer's year, well, that will be in the next uh, podcast. And it's a very, say, it's a pivotal year uh, for him. He hasn't, what's that cliche? sealed the deal yet but he'll have to do it this year in the next 12 months okay now if it's all right with all of you over to your questions just a reminder it's steve rick 14 at icloud.com Uh, And let's go to your questions that have come up over uh, Christmas, New Year, etc, etc. Now, Venetia Kane has had one of the great Christmases. I mean, I always find Christmas a bit of a weird time of year. I don't know what you think. Um, Some great things, some kind of social things that don't quite work, some food things that were disastrous. One social and food thing with me. Both didn't work. And I think, oh, my God, what have I done? Oh, it's so stressful. I find it more stressful than um, doing a live show. You know, if I, if I could, my dream would be a live show at, you know, the O2. <laughs> and I wouldn't find that at all nerve-wracking. Christmas, New Year, yeah. Anyway, but Venetia Kane, she went on a cruise. She very kindly sent me wonderful photos. Thank you, Venetia. Uh, it was uh, uh, towards and in Norway. And the final one was a... Uh, photo of Venetia with the Schengen uh, border 
kind of sign up. Now, of course, we weren't in Schengen in the first place, were we? But it's a further reminder of the UK's distance from this. Of course, Norway is not in the EU, but it has a better deal than Britain. And of course, it's prospering for all sorts of reasons, not least uh, using the oil money that they got far, far more productively than uh, the Thatcher governments in the 80s. Um, anyway, but that's a detour. Anyway, I hope you had a great time. Venetia, I assume you're back. Now, uh, she, uh, she very kindly listened. I don't know if any of you heard the uh, podcast over the Christmas New Year week where it included a talk I gave at Newcastle University on the term trust in politics. Anyway, uh, Venish says, you concluded that the media is one of those that have a responsibility, that word again, yeah, responsibility, that's another word we need to look at, to explore the real dilemmas facing politicians. For as long as they exist to make money, do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell of their doing so? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. There's a, a, there are some other questions. Uh, Jeff Strange has uh, written a very interesting email, which I've just literally received before recording. Don't know if I'll get to it, Jeff, this week, but if not this week, next week. About the same in the media at the moment. Of course, not all uh, make money. The BBC don't. Sky News is a kind of loss-making thing for Sky, subsidised by sport, etc. The newspapers try and make money. Not all of them do, uh, as we all know. It is, you see, I think when you explore the dilemmas facing politicians, it's as exciting as portraying them as useless and corrupt and dangerous. Now, some are, of course, and we've lived through a period of danger and corruption. But quite a lot of the time, it's like, you know, do any of you remember that thriller 24 with Jack Bauer, which always took place through a 24-hour day? And each episode, really, the thrill was working out uh, which way Bauer would turn as he faced nightmarish dilemmas, sort of, should he shoot his friend or should he shoot his best friend in order to get on? Or is that friend his best friend? Or is, you, you know what I mean? They were, uh, that's what drew the audience in. And so I don't think it is boring uh, for the media to highlight dilemmas facing uh, politicians, to explain them, you can still slang them off if you disapprove of the way they attempt to resolve those dilemmas. Uh, but I do think there is space for it. And in that space, you do then kind of address to some extent the issue of trust. Because when you realise that politicians sometimes are trapped and that explains their behaviour, it's not because they're always a bunch of mendacious bastards. And yet that is the kind of default assumption. Anyway, for those of you who didn't hear it, that was in the last week's podcast. It's still the joy of podcasts is you can go back to them. Um, and that is uh, that talk is there. Uh, thank you, Venetia. I say I kind of kind of envied you following your trip around Norway and thinking, yeah, good time in some respects to be away. Anyway, uh, Andrew Kitching writes, uh, he, he says it's going to be a fascinating uh, year politically. I agree. I think in some ways it's going to be more fascinating than 2022, but in different ways. Uh, we, you, we need to delve deep this year uh, to show why it's going to be so fascinating. Uh, he, anyway, Andrew says, I noticed an important change 
on how it will be reported while listening to the correspondence look ahead on Radio 4. Yeah, I, I missed it this year. It's a good programme, that one. Both Alex Forsyth, speaking about UK politics, and Simon Jack Business, mentioned how it's becoming increasingly clear that the Brexit withdrawal agreement is having a dreadful effect on our trade and the economy. The BBC are openly saying this now, not skirting around the subject. I think that bodes ill for the government, but it will also mean Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves won't be able to ignore the subject either. Well, Andrew, that's amazing. If that's what they said, I'm going to listen back because, to be honest, I assume you kind of, to some extent, heard what you wanted to hear because... um, they have to be bloody careful, in fairness, in, in terms of partiality, um, to 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 say it quite so blatantly as that. I know what we've had up until now is a pathetic timidity. It's a timidity which is based on a fear of the Director General and the BBC Chair detecting anything that appears to um, challenge the people's verdict in the 2016 referendum. Uh, which has been weak and defensive and, and and without justification editorially. But to go to the other side, well, I'll listen back and see. Um, but I, I do think more widely, I noticed that over Christmas and New Year, uh, more evidence of how bad this Brexit deal of Lord Frosty Frost is. Um, I don't know if you saw that, uh, that was it? It wasn't the CBI. It was one of the business groups highlighting how terrible it has been for business. And we've had sort of economists saying that of all those in the G7, the UK will suffer the deepest recession and the most shallow recovery. This is Brexit related. And I think it will become harder and harder uh, for the BBC and others to underplay it. They, of course, can't say. You you cannot have a BBC editor saying uh, Brexit is a disaster, but you can acknowledge when analysing the current state of crisis in this country that Brexit has is a factor. Or you can just say, if you're, you know, the BBC user, some argue that Brexit is a significant factor if you don't feel able to say it yourself. And I think there will be more of that uh, in the coming year. Let's see. From France, our French correspondent, Dominique Joule, has translated a tweet by the French transport minister, Clement Boyne. How do you pronounce it, Dominique? Anyway, that was my attempt. This is what he tweeted. We are hearing less from the Brexit zealots. They told us during a period which was difficult for everyone that things would get better by leaving the EU. It's the opposite. The Brexit bill is already 37 billion euros. He was quoting an article from Le Paris. This is Dominica, Le, Le Parisien the day before, the opening lines of which were non-stop strikes, inflation, the cost of living, the UK is tearing itself apart, overwhelmed by inflation. The country, which is run by the unyielding Rishi Sunak, is sinking into economic and social crisis. A scathing assessment, uh, says Dominica, but not an outlier in the French media at present. One French lady recently wondered out loud if Les Anglais are at last taking a leaf out of the French book and embarking on their own revolution. Yeah, well, I know, you know, obviously there's a kind of uh, pleasure, uh, partly, uh, only partly in that kind of um, uh, 
assessment, uh, but it does blow apart the idea that you hear sometimes uh, uh, from British exceptionalists in this country, uh, you know, in this government, uh, that Britain is sort of hugely regarded at the moment as world beating and all the rest of it. Um, you just read, you know, my friend John Kampfner, who wrote a book on why Germany does it better, tells me the mood when he's in Berlin is just kind of people feel sorry and for Britain and baffled as to how it's got into this uh, situation of total dysfunctionality. Anyway, thank you, Dominica. Keep us informed with the French dimension, even if it doesn't cheer us up. Nick Ratcliffe uh, wrote in from Edinburgh. Uh, he was he was looking responding to that talk I gave about trust, um, but uh, Nick he also I can't explain it on the podcast. He 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 gave me the sort of diagram of how you can measure the way leaders and others are perceived, uh, because he connects uh, or explores the issue of trust and authenticity, which are slightly different things, but are connected, of course, because if you're if you appear to be authentic, at least people trust you more anyway but they are different uh and nick says i think starmer must score well on trustworthiness at the moment and probably mostly on competence too i think his problem is that he's perceived as not very authentic and i think this could still prove a huge problem for him at the next election and highlights the danger of his current positioning we all know he's much more pro-european than he's currently willing to admit and his inauthenticity could prove a huge stumbling block under sustained attack at the next election, losing him support both from those who think Brexit was a catastrophe and those who support it, and might struggle to trust someone inauthentically, claiming he doesn't see it as a problem. Yeah, it's very interesting, um, this thing of being authentic and trustworthy. And it's right, you know, Starmer, former DPP, and you know that uh, where competence is tested and trust is very much tested and yet the issue of being authentic when you have made quite a leap from one position to another is is interesting and i think that do present uh challenges which i will explore nick if that's okay with you in the next podcast when we look at keir starmer in 2023 From Paul Cruz. Paul says, I was thinking about what you've been saying on the number of Tory politicians who said they are leaving Parliament, and was thinking of the contrast with speculation that certain Ancien Regime Labour figures, David Miliband, Douglas Alexander, might return. I think that contrast is probably best explained as a result of the differing fortunes of the two major parties. But I was wondering if there are any examples of any politicians leaving Parliament and coming back to any great success. Churchill had his wilderness years, but was a constant parliamentary presence. It would seem unlikely anyone, particularly in the modern era, would have success due to short extension spans, things moving on, and the fact that if you've been there once, you'll have made enemies. Yeah, it's an interesting theme. And it is very difficult to return once you've left. I'll just give one example. I haven't got time to give more, Paul, but there are others. Uh, Take the case of Michael Portillo. Lost his seat in uh, 1997, famously. Were you up for Portillo? 
uh, got back in in a by-election, was immediately made shadow chancellor under William Hague, and had a deeply uncomfortable relationship with Hague, then stood for the leadership in 2001, lost, and on the day he lost, announced he went to the opera and announced he was leaving politics. Now, the first time round, Portillo had quite a sort of glamorous career in Parliament. Uh, the Thatcherites' favourite, a cabinet minister, potential future leader. Um, but that's where um, he ended up the second time round. And if I were uh, the likes of David Miliband, I would... I mean, I, I can't quite see the route back for some of these people. Maybe at the last minute, uh, Starmer will want to give them seats, given his uh, preoccupation with the new Labour era at the moment. But, you know, the idea that they'll immediately become senior cabinet ministers and return to the flow in, as if they hadn't left, that won't happen. It's a very odd thing when you step outside and come back. It, it, it rarely works. Same in football, when a manager returns who's left, um, having been successful the first time. It's, it's tricky, tricky. Um, so good point, Paul. And uh, finally, uh, for this time, if it's OK with all of you, uh, Abby Garrett. Now, she was um, reflecting on when we last talked about the issue of the word reform. So for those of you new to the podcast... I looked at trust during the Christmas New Year week as a word, a term in politics, and the week before uh, the term reform. Anyway, Abby says, regarding health reform, it strikes me that to have a strong health service, you need real strength and power both at the local level and at the centre. Yeah, I agree, Abby, and this is the constant dilemma of the balance between the two. Returning to Abby, I realise this might initially sound like a bit of a cop-out, but they serve different purposes. The pandemic showed the need for a strong national-level policy, strong accountability at the centre, and we need this to enable a quick reaction to future threats. As suggested uh, in the podcast, there did seem to have uh, be blurred lines, which may have further slowed reactions in the early days uh, between... yeah. Absolutely. And those blurred lines, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the Department of Health, uh, the, then you have the uh, Public Health England and all these other agencies further down. However, strategies for health inequality should be tackled at a local level and respond to local population need, as should the services. One of the things that's often missed from the austerity cuts is the cuts to local public health budgets and how that's impacted on prevention. Once again, short-term cuts not accounting for longer-term consequences. This is all brilliant stuff, I think, and you're absolutely right about it. And by the way, when we've discussed health, we haven't really looked at the area of preventative measures. Uh, being so fundamental. Look at the impact of the smoking ban. That didn't cost a penny. It would be interesting to see some analysis of the Manchester model, where health, health and social care is part of the devolution deal. Yeah, that was under Osborne, and Osborne could be innovative in some ways. And I would like to look at that a bit more to see the degree to which there was genuine devolution and how it worked. Um, uh, which tries to do this, see whether it works and whether it could be replicated elsewhere. Yeah, good thought. Of course, this would also rightly require investment and some properly devolved funding, not just powers in theory, but in practice. Yeah, and that's where the problems begin. 
because if the centre provides the funding and then gives away all power as to how that funding is spent, even though they are responsible and accountable for raising the money, that is part of the real tension between the centre and the local, um, which is very, very difficult to resolve. Anyway, yeah, well, what a lot of themes for the start of... 2023. Um, And as I say, if you could leave a review or subscribe and tell your friends, then our cooperative becomes more uh, wide ranging than ever. Anyway, look, uh, get running. Have any of you made running resolutions? I have. I have. I might tell you more about that next week. Um, And well, what a start to the year. Good luck navigating the chaos. And let's get together very soon to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye.